milestone that I'm happy about. Um, I'm very proud of the hard work and, and I'm sort of starting to see the effects of compounding that I've been reading about for years and years and years. And I'm starting to kind of actually feel those effects. But, you know, it's it's something that we've worked hard toward and also, you know, definitely need to to call out the fact that both my husband and I were super privileged to graduate without any college debt. And that absolutely set us up for, you know, being able to start this journey. Welcome millionaires and future millionaires. You're listening to the Millionaires Unveiled podcast, the show where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their portfolio allocation. Now to your host, Jace Mattinson. Welcome back to another episode of the Millionaires Unveiled podcast. This is episode number 290. It is tax times, folks. In fact, I think this is probably one of the latest week or days, I guess, April 18th here. Today's the 17th, but uh, yeah, tomorrow uh, is tax day. So hope everybody's got their taxes filed or their extensions done. I was looking into just taxes in general, and this is always kind of an interesting time of year to look at what your effective tax rates are and some of the best and worst tax states to uh, live in. And, you know, it's interesting, depending on what kind of consumer you are, uh, what, what, what this plays into and how this affects. I mean, obviously, we know some of the highest state income tax states are uh, California and New York, uh, Minnesota's up there. And then we have, you know, a handful, dozen or just under a dozen that are no income tax, Texas, Florida, Nevada, Wyoming, uh, South Dakota, Tennessee, Alaska, but those states typically have much higher property taxes and uh, sales tax. In fact, sales tax in Tennessee is almost up at upwards of 10%. So interesting thing to look at. I think a lot of people now in this day and age are, are looking at this uh, probably more in depth than maybe they were previously, uh, partly because the pandemic has changed a lot of working habits and uh, it'd be interesting to see where where p- kind of the, the population trends uh, continue as it relates to state income taxes, uh, property taxes, and sales taxes. But at any rate, uh, everybody's uh, for the most part subject to some sort of federal tax or at least filing a federal tax return. Maybe you don't have any to pay, but uh, if you're a real estate investor, have some losses or whatever, everybody's situation is different. But at any rate... Something to look forward to, I guess, this week is uh, getting that taken care of one way or the other, whether it's through an extension or, or actually filing uh, your return. So appreciate those that uh, continue to leave reviews. We've had several good ones come in. I'll definitely want to continue that trend. I think we're upwards almost 760 on iTunes and uh, getting some more on uh Spotify as well. So wherever you listen, please leave us a rating and review. If you'd like to be on the show, send us an email, millionairesandbuild at gmail.com. We'll get you scheduled and get rolling on that. think that takes care of housekeeping this week. So this week's episode, we have Emily. She's net worth of $1.5 million-ish. About a million of that is in a taxable brokerage. And then a little bit in a 401k or retirement accounts and then a little bit more in some cash. She does not have a house or a car and never has. So crazy story about how that's all come about. Uh, she's just shy of turning 30 and works in consulting and uh, has gone to 
uh, got a got a degree and uh, also went to business school. So we get into kind of her educational journey and how that has set her up for success. So great interview with her. Back to back week or weeks with twenty nine year olds. We had Kyle last week. He was twenty nine at his own business the heavy equipment space, and he had about a million uh, split between cash, home equity, his business, and retirement accounts. So without any further delay, let's get into the episode with Emily. Emily, do you want to just give us a little about your background and what you're up to now? Sure. Um, Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for having me on. I am a consultant. I've been consulting my entire career. Uh, I'm happily married. I've been uh, with my husband for uh, over nine years now. In my free time, I love to run and be outside. I do a lot of skiing in the winter and and hiking in the summer. Okay. And what is your net worth today? Today, we're looking at just about uh, over a million dollars in my taxable brokerage account, a few hundred thousand in retirement, uh, and about a hundred thousand dollars in cash. So about, you know, call it three quarters uh, in taxable brokerage, a quarter in retirement. And I do not own a home. I don't own any real estate. Uh, I don't own a car. We don't own a car. Uh, And we don't really have any other physical assets to speak of. Holy cow. So hold on here for a second. No home and no car. How, 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 How can that be? That's just not normal for any American to not own a home and not own a car. Yeah, I mean, well, I think it, it started when uh, we graduated from college and we both ended up in, uh, you know, a big city. Um, and, you know, like most of our peers, we didn't know how long we were going to be there. We didn't know how long either of us were going to have our job out of school. Uh, and we both ended up staying in that city for, for quite a long time. And it's not, you know, in a city, you don't really need it. You, we have good public transportation. Um, we get around on our feet and on bikes, and and now they've got these fun electric scooters. There are a lot of options, so we don't we don't feel at all we're missing out. In fact, like it would be a probably a huge burden to have a car and and have to park it and and pay for parking and all that jazz. And and the no home thing is very similar, which is we just uh, we we've never known how long we were going to be here, um, or if we were going to move cities for our job. Uh, it never felt like it was going to be fully permanent. And, and it also just didn't make sense because we didn't need we didn't need a house. We were very comfortable in an apartment. And have you rented the same apartment for several years or have you moved around quite a bit? Uh, I, we've, I, I've moved around and, and he's moved around a bit. But um, since we've been together, since we've been living together, uh, we've been in the same spot. So we've been there for, um, I think, about four years, something like that. And, okay. and weathered COVID in 700 square feet. Wow. So let's let's dig into the, the net worth just a little bit. So the, the money in the tax bowl is that that basically invested in in stocks, bonds, mutual funds. How does that break up? Yeah, uh, great question. So when I first started out, it was a whole bunch of random mutual funds uh, that I didn't really know what was going on there. And as I've gotten smarter in investing, uh, it, all of our investments and all of my investments have funneled into total stock market mutual funds in in the ETF version or the mutual fund version, depending on which which account and, and which direct deposit and all that. But pretty much all of it is now in total stock market mutual fund. And is your retirement accounts the same as well? Yep. The retirement account is, I think, I can't remember if it's a, one of the rollover ones or, or maybe the 401k. I don't think we had the option to do a total stock market. So I think we're in whatever is closest to it with a very low expense ratio. Okay. 
Okay. So I guess, I mean, is the strategy been basically any excess money after you're invested in your retirement accounts, you either put in cash or invested in a brokerage account pretty much? Yeah. And, and I would say we don't really even think about cash. Cash is something that we just, we make sure we have enough. I think we, we do our three to six month emergency fund. I think we're a bit conservative there. We're, we're quite conservative in, in how much cash we keep. And otherwise everything extra just goes straight into to mutual funds. Interesting. And no desire to invest in real estate at all? Uh, I mean, for a while, there was a desire. I think I saw a lot of my peers start to get interested in it. Probably, I don't know, maybe four or five years ago, uh, real estate investing was starting to get a lot of press in, in personal finance uh, publications. And so I kept my eye out. I had a lot of Zillow alerts in different markets. I mean, we had one in Atlanta. I would have had house. So I was like, okay, this math works. I am fully confident. Um, and then, you know, since then, we've seen prices really, really shoot up and, and the math has made less sense to me. And, and, and honestly, I've um, been very happy with having a very passive investment in, in mutual funds. And the idea of becoming a landlord is less attractive now. Interesting. So the the retirement accounts real quick, just want to go back to those, just given that that between that and your brokerage, it's a, it's a massive chunk of the net worth. Do you have a, a, a specific split between, you know, traditional versus Roth or has there been a strategy around that? Uh, great question. So Roth, we have not been eligible to contribute to for a while. Uh, sorry, Roth IRA. Generally, I, I'm a big believer in just maxing out my traditional 401k. And I, I guess to answer your question, I don't know if we have a really a really big strategy there. No, I think I, I kind of believe in diversifying. I don't know exactly where the taxes are going to land into the future. I don't think anyone does. So I feel good about maxing out my 401k, my, my traditional 401k and Roth when I was eligible. And, and no HSA at all either? No, no. I think there's only one job I had that had one. Okay, cool. Well, good deal. I mean, pretty tremendous, you know, net worth for, I mean, you're pretty young, right? Relatively speaking. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I wanted to sneak this interview in while I was still in my 20s. Oh my gosh. You're kidding. Yeah. I, I mean, I think we, we I, honestly, it's a, it's a milestone that I'm happy about. Um, I'm very proud of the hard work and, and I'm sort of starting to see the effects of compounding that I've been reading about for years and years and years. And I'm starting to kind of actually feel those effects. But, you know, it's, it's something that we've worked hard toward and also, you know, definitely need to, to call out the fact that both my husband and I were super privileged to graduate without any college debt. And that absolutely set us up for, you know, being able to start this journey. So, uh, Emily, I assume being con- consultant, you have a pretty hefty like work schedule, right? Like you, you guys probably have quite a bit of work time. Do you plan on staying in the same field for quite a while or once the compounding really starts to hit, do you have plans for a, a pivot? Uh, great question. So uh, I'm having like a tiny bit of a quarter life crisis, you might call it, where we are finally, I am starting to finally feel financially comfortable enough to not make every career move based on compensation, which has has driven compensation as well as career trajectory have driven a lot of my career moves and you know my dedication to consulting and for the first time ever I think I'm feeling psychologically comfortable enough to do something I've always wanted to do which is actually to do something entrepreneurial and start my own business so and, and I would absolutely I I would I would uh, I think the reason for that is because of our finances and, and because we are financially comfortable and because we've 
built this nest egg, I feel now comfortable taking a risk in my career. Very cool. And do you uh, have an idea of what that is, or you're just starting to get comfortable with just the idea of breaking off? I have some idea, some potential partners, but nothing concrete yet. Got it. What, and from I think Jace didn't go into this yet, but where does your money psychology come from? Like, what were your? How did you grow up with money? Obviously, you're very good at saving and planning and things like that. Was your family like that or are you a complete anomaly? Yeah. So I would say that I am very lucky that my my family is very frugal and the frugality was incredibly instilled in me. And I actually, uh, way back when my parents downsized while I was still in elementary school and I went from a big childhood bedroom to a very, very small childhood bedroom that could pretty much only fit one twin bed. And my parents told me, and I think I was, I don't know what what grade I was in, uh, but my parents told me that they did it because they were saving for their retirement. And that, I mean, that was, that absolutely landed with me and I hated it. I sort of used it as like, uh, you know, I told all my friends that like, oh, I they downsized. I have this small bedroom now. And, you know, which of course is, is a very privileged thing to say. But their decisions were very transparent about why they were making these trade-offs and they shared it with me. Uh, and so that I'm sure it rubbed off on me. Um, so, so definitely the family side was, was uh, instilled early on. But then personally, when I, when I uh, graduated from college, less than a year into the workforce, I was laid off. Uh, and at that point, I did not know anything about investing. I did not have organized personal finance. I didn't really know what was going on. Um, and all of a sudden, I went to, from having a pretty good income to having no income, living in a you know high cost of living city. I had high rent. I had uh, you know I had bills. I had bills to pay, um, and it I was totally scrambling. I um, I was I was even getting paper checks for my job. I didn't have direct deposit, and that panic led me to learn a ton about investing. Really, sort of right the ship from trying to understand how finances work, how personal finances work. It led me to learn about the FIRE movement, the Financial Independent Retire Early movement, which married what I already knew, which was frugality. And it sort of gave it a purpose, which was, okay, you're doing, you're being frugal, you're saving all this money so that you never end up in a situation like I had just found myself, which was, you know, having no income and having no control and feeling totally like the rug was ripped out from under me. Uh, so I, you know, I learned about investing. I learned about all these things, um, and I haven't really looked back. So when you started the journey of, you know, learning personal finance, basically your foundation was your parents' frugality. But what was the first big aha that you had once you got from let's call it zero to one uh, when it came to your personal finance strategy or just knowledge? What was the big aha for? Oh, uh, for sure, the biggest aha was investing. So my frugality led me to keep cash. I was really good at getting a paycheck and not spending at all. Save, you know, take that paycheck, put it in the savings account. And I did that. I did it for that first year. I did it for quite a bit, even as I was starting to learn about this. And I did it throughout all my summer, college jobs, et cetera. Take, take the Take the paycheck, don't spend it all, put some of it in the savings account. And so when I started to learn all this, all about this, I learned about investing and I realized how much cash I was sitting on. And I didn't fully, I was not comfortable enough yet with knowing where to invest it. And I was totally in a analysis paralysis spiral of like, 
understanding the power of investing, but not knowing tactically, how do I open a Fidelity account or a Vanguard account? Like what buttons do I click to link my bank account to pick the right mutual fund? All of that stuff. And so once I once I realized that, it, and it still it still took me literally years to get comfortable with shifting from ninety percent, ninety five percent cash to something that is really just an emergency fund. Uh, and I did it. I did it over time. I did. I did a lot of uh, dollar cost averaging of buying in very, very slowly, and missed out on a ton of returns. Absolutely. Do you feel like you're happy with your strategy? Do you feel secure with your strategy? Do you feel like there's more to know? But or your, you know, your your strategy is very simple, and effect, and I think it's one that's very common on the sh- on the show, and and obviously it works. Are there things that you are are tweaking or you like what's simple is best? Hmm. Um, I would say that I think you're spot on that it's a simple strategy. There's a, you know, one of the books I read only recently, actually, I wish I'd read it about 10 years ago, A Simple Path to Wealth, which is, you know, a fan favorite of anyone in the personal finance community. It is, it is simple and it is effective. And I, and I do believe in that. Over time, do I see myself becoming interested in some more alternative investments? Absolutely. I I went to business school and I learned about hedge funds and I learned about all these other fun, you know, angel investing and venture capital and all these other fun investment classes um, that are very exciting. And I think the way I think about it is like those are those are opportunities for sure. And I think that you can have great success with them. But in my mind, they're almost a little bit of play money of anything that I'm willing to put toward those sort of exciting asset classes. I have to be willing to lose, uh, which you can totally lose money in the total stock market mutual fund. But I feel so confident in the long term return in that that I don't think there are very many other asset classes I feel just as confident in. Let me ask something real quick. You you touched on college and you know, kind of post-career aspirations and goals and everything. I mean, to this point in such a short time, you're not even 30 yet. Have you kind of checked all those boxes that, that you really wanted to check? Obviously hitting millionaire status for there. I mean, that's a huge one. We don't do that. You know, I'm just curious, did, did all those boxes get checked? And, and do you feel like that has propelled you at this point to kind of do the things that, that you really plan to do, you know, through your 30s and 40s? What do you mean by boxes to check? Because for me, those are not only the must-haves; those are the want to do. And and if it's if you you're talking about the must-haves, I guess yes, I've checked a lot of them in terms of I went to I went to undergrad, I started my career in consulting, I went through the ranks to you know some of the higher levels, went to business school. But the boxes I'm looking forward to checking that I have not done are the more entrepreneurial ones, are the build a successful business build such a successful business that I can actually start giving back to the next generation of women in business and female entrepreneurs, you know, build such a successful business that I can invest in those future companies or institutions or, or, um, you know, philanthropy endeavors. Um, There's still a lot of want to do boxes I have not checked. Yeah, for sure. So you mentioned you went to, to business school. I mean, love to hear your thoughts on that and, and how that's played into, you know, career trajectory and mindset and, and, and that kind of thing. Yeah. So business school is interesting because uh, it used to have a super, it, it still has a great value proposition for a lot of people. Um, but for some people, the value proposition has diminished a little bit. And I'm one of those 
people and that when I graduated from undergrad, I, I joined consulting and consulting actually kind of spits you out over the course of, of the, the ladder. It actually spits you out above the, the business school role before you even enter business school if you go full time. Um, so when I was considering going to business school, it was really tough for me to think about leaving the workforce for a couple of years only to come back at the same level or, or a level below um, at a different firm if you were to pivot. Uh, and so, and, and you run the numbers on how much missed opportunity of comp plus paying the 150K to go. It's really expensive. So I, I realized that it wasn't going to go full time, but I was really interested in potentially doing it part time, which was a bit unusual and uh, something I had to go to my employer and see if they would, number one, support me and actually you know, allowing me to go to class in the, at night and on the weekends, and then two, actually pay for it and sponsor me. Uh, and they did, which I'm, I'm really, really lucky to have that sponsorship. But honestly, I, I probably would not have gone uh, if I was footing the bill. Interesting. That's, that's a, I mean, I, I went through this same kind of exercise for myself a long time ago and, and had plans and goals. And at some point, I still probably will either try to do a night program or something you know, an EMBA or whatever, mainly just because at some point I'd love to to teach in college. But I, I understand the the struggle, you know, and I've done this with, I don't know how many dozens of friends too. And some of them chose to go do it and career pivot and whatnot. But it is a, a pretty hefty exercise to look at the, the opportunity cost of going with a bunch of unknowns, you know, going to school, where you get in, what you'll do, where you'll land after, what your network was going to look like after, you know, those kinds of things versus where you were already. And it's interesting to, to hear you describe how you kind of went through those and basically it landed it, hey, if I had to pay for it, I wasn't going to do it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, it still makes a lot of sense for a lot of people, especially if they don't have a business background or if their career before business school wasn't, wasn't related. Um, but if you're already in that career, the career that you want to end up in, it's really hard to make the math work. Yeah, for sure. So at this point, we've we've got uh, you know kind of a decent history on on where you've come from and, and kind of the last decade of your schooling and career headed towards possible entrepreneurship, starting a business or doing something more entrepreneurial. What does the, I mean, where do you go from here in terms of your net worth, your investing strategy? I mean, you mentioned you may get into alternative investments. Is there a target net worth you're, you're looking to hit or, you know, something down the road in terms of giving back that you really want to do or, or, you know, be curious to hear your thoughts on that. I would say that right now I'm still, I have been so focused on building my career, socking away as much money as I can, you know, trying to keep lifestyle inflation as low as possible, but it still happens. Uh, and, and sort of single-mindedly focused on this, on top of a few other things that I haven't even given myself the space to really think about what's next. Uh, and that's what I'm just starting to do, which is, okay, now that I am starting to feel com- comfortable what are those goals uh, for myself? And I, I, I do know the one, you know, the one that I, I will go after is going to go do something, start something on my own and, and see what we can make it and, and leave W2 life behind for a little bit. Um, but beyond that, I, I don't know exactly what, what all those goals are, but I definitely need to spend some time to think about it. Do you have a target net worth or had one ever past the getting to the million by 30? Uh, I would say that originally I had a number in my mind, which was two, two and a half million dollars. And that number came from 
uh, the 4% safe withdrawal rate, which is the commonly used number within the fire community that get, spits out about 100K a year of annual spend that you can safely withdraw and preserve your nest egg. With that said, inflation obviously has <laughs> impacted uh, us quite a bit. So I think, and, and you know, the other huge unknown for me is that right now we are a double income, no kid family. Uh, that's going to change over the next few years, if I if I suspect and if we're lucky. And I really don't know what that's going to look like. I've heard that you know, cost household expenses are going to shoot through the roof, uh, and you're probably going to have to get a different roof. But I don't know exactly what our uh, what our cost of living is going to look like. And I think once I get a sense of that, I can kind of work backwards to figure out what my target net worth is. So maybe it's closer to three, three and a half, four. But to be honest. I, my husband has no intention of ever stopping work. Uh, he has no interest in retiring. Uh, and I don't know how well I would do in retirement. I'm a pretty hard worker and I really like to bring value to people and, and collaborate. So I don't know if we ever will retire, but I do think that number is higher than the two and a half I originally thought. If, if you uh, start a family and you can live with no car, then Jason and I will personally come and give you a, a trophy. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, gosh. Um, I, I don't think I want to take the other side of that bet because I bet you're right. <laughs> so there's one expense you'll have that you didn't before. Oh, I guess you could have a train seat or an Uber seat. Yeah. Anyways. Something like that. Uh, good stuff. <laughs> so as, as it relates to, to your investment strategy and going a more entrepreneurial route, is there a level of of kind of your nest egg at this point that you would be willing to risk on a business or is that's not something that you've thought through yet? Uh, I actually, I have started to think that through um, in some conversations with some partners and potential partners. And it is interesting that because this has been such a focus of mine, the risk for me is more about my time and not earning an income at a W-2 job. And so if I think about that as being the biggest risk I'm willing to take, which is leave a high paying job that to add more risk on top of that by actually risking some of the capital that we've we've built, I think is probably too much risk for me uh, to to a certain extent. And, you know, call it if it's, you know, if it's a few thousand dollars or ten thousand and twenty thousand dollars, I think that's fine. But I can't imagine myself being willing to go much more than that, just because the risk for me is actually losing my income, which I'm, you know, foregoing my income to pursue the opportunity. Yeah, it's interesting. As we've talked to more and more millionaires, I don't know that we did this very much at the beginning of the show, but it's interesting to talk through just the mindset on risk and risk tolerance. And I mean, I guess I'd be curious to know too, you know, in the last five years, call it, I mean, have you noticed your risk tolerance changing as your level of net worth has, has climbed? A tiny bit. I mean, I think risk as well as lifestyle inflation, you know, how much I'm willing to spend to me, those are kind of interchangeable, which is just my tolerance for spending in a way that's not, that's not a, a sure thing or, or a close to sure thing. And I guess, yes, and that, and if I think about risk as both of those things, then yes, it has gone up. I do have a Robinhood account. I sometimes like to buy options. Sometimes okay. They work out. Okay. Now we're, now we're, now we're pulling this out. Okay. <laughs> it's all play money. I, I am comfortable never seeing it again. I, it's not even part of my net worth because it's not important. Um, and it's just for fun. I consider it just for learning, but, uh, yes, I guess I'm, I wouldn't have done that. Five years ago. I'm a, I'm going to deem this episode the, 
the title is going to be Every Millionaire Has a Closet Investment. <laughs> <laughs> it's there are so- no gold bars in my closet. Even if you look hard. <laughs> oh, man, that's funny. So what did you start the Robinhood account to play around with some stuff then and buy some options? Oh, well, 2019, so just in time for COVID and oh, all perfect. the fun that happened there. Did you do any of the meme stocks too? Unfortunately not. Oh, um, I was not risk taking then. I'm, we're talking like I would buy single shares here. Oh man, I love it. So I guess, I mean, at, at what level of net worth were you comfortable doing that? Oh gosh. At then, I don't know. Um, it was probably, it was probably still over a million maybe. I don't okay. know. I'd have to go back and look. But so you was, got to millionaire and I was like, hey, I could take a little risk with one, one option here, there. Yes, exactly. Okay, exactly. And, 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 and every single time I do something that's, you know, like that, let's say I pull the trigger on an option. I actually do consult my husband just because I want him to be confident. I don't want him to think I'm gambling away our money. I, I am the person in our household who I, I do all of our finances. I do all of our investing in our household. Um, and I'm very upfront about our strategy and he's bought into it. So when, when I do something like that, I just say, hey, what do you think about shorting this stock that may or may not be, you know, something that we, we think is going down? Yeah. As it relates to your spending outside of just, you know, natural inflation on, on things, how, I mean, what, what are the things that you've been willing to spend more money on as, as, you know, from a lifestyle inflation standpoint? Mm, I would say the, the biggest, the biggest thing that we spend more money on than we ever did before, and I am okay with it, has to do with travel and eating out and doing things with our friends where, you know, back in the day, if we went out to a nice dinner, I mean, we live in a big city, there's lots of great restaurants, it's a classic activity to hang out with our friends is to go out for a nice meal. Back in the day, those meals would hurt me, you know, I would go out to dinner, and I'm like, cringing when everyone's ordering, knowing that I'm going to pay my share and their share. Uh, And now I don't even think about it. And I am okay with it. And I know that's just, that's how it works with our friend group. And that's how it works in this life stage. And we're lucky enough to be able to do it. And we're lucky enough to have restaurants in, you know, in our backyard that we can do this at. And I, I still don't know if there's as much value in it as I would like there to be, but I'm more comfortable spending on it. Okay. Before we, before we get into rapid fire questions, I have one, one more question. Do your friends know anything about your net worth? Ah, they do not know anything about my net worth. They know, they believe I am a crazy frugal person. In fact, at our wedding, my uh, two best friends gave a speech where they talked about how much I love to find value. And they talked about how, uh, you know, I'll, I'll buy food at the clearance section and things like that, which may or may not be true. I've never, you know, I, I, I'm not saying that's true, but that's what they believe to be true. So they, have they, they witnessed you dropping cans in the aisles. <laughs> they have cans. not. Oh, well, that's not. They, they have not, but they know better. My one of my best friends is a uh, excellent chef, and and if she's cooking for us, and we go out to, uh, you know, Whole Foods or whatever gourmet grocery store she shops at, she knows that not to give me the produce because I will not buy organic produce, and only she will only buy organic produce. Got it. Well, this is this is a a, a battle. Okay, so I'm gonna. Jace, it's all it's all you, buddy. <laughs> all right, let's let's get rolling on them. So, what's the what is the most expensive meal out that you paid for? Uh, that I've paid for probably a few hundred dollars. Okay, and what about the most? I guess you haven't bought a car. What about the most expensive a uh, bucket list item experience or 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 thing you know related to travel that you've paid for? Our honeymoon was by far the most expensive. It was a couple weeks in Europe, and I think it was. About six or seven thousand dollars. Okay. What was a key lesson you learned from childhood? 
frugality. It was a gift. It, it, frugality and, and, and I would also throw out education, which, you know, led me to being able to pick the career I picked. Okay. What's something on your bucket list that you're still looking forward to? Oh, um, I'm looking forward to one day living on a beach. Okay. Is that going to be a second home or is you going to retire to the beach or maybe a little of both? Who knows? Who knows? Okay. Where do you think your original interest in personal finance stemmed from? Beyond, you know, my family's uh, intensity around frugality, um, I would say it, it, it was sparked by the early blogs, the early personal finance blogs. And I'm going to give a shout out to, um, I believe it's Mrs. Frugalwoods was an early blog where I just loved her writing. I loved her mission to get people to spend less than they make and do it with a goal in mind. Um, and I think she did a really nice job and continues to do a nice job on that. What would you say are some of the best things that you've done to, to be frugal or the most frugal things that you do or have done? Um, oh, I mean, I'm, I'm into all the hacks. I'll, I will, I buy a lot of used clothes. I would say one of the, one of the sort of compounding ones was switching from a gym membership to the Peloton digital membership, which, you know, we used to pay a hundred bucks each, 200 bucks a month for a fancy gym. Um, and now we pay, I think it's like $15 a month. And so over time, that's going to be really impactful. Real quick on Peloton, just because I'm a super user. <laughs> I've got all the equipment, mm. full disclosure. <laughs> Do you, I mean, as a Peloton user yourself, not with all the equipment, but, but on the gym, I mean, are you worried that they don't remain solvent at some point? <laughs> oh, <laughs> Should gosh. I ask that on oh, this gosh. podcast? <laughs> Um, I mean, I'm also a shareholder, so that was a great idea. Oh, perfect. <laughs> uh, no, I'm not worried. I think their content is king in the industry. Okay. Do you use a credit card? Yes. Yeah. I'm a big, big uh, fan of the Fidelity 2% cash back. Oh, okay. Interesting. So not, not into collecting travel points or hotel points or anything, just using Fidelity 2% cash back? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the whole points game for me was a little too hard to keep track of. And I'm, I like simple and organized and you don't forget anything. Nothing expires. It will always be there and it's guaranteed. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. All right. Last, uh, last question before we talk about mistakes and advice, how do you get in head in life? I think you have to be really authentic, uh, which I think takes some time. It takes time to figure out what it means to be authentic, who you actually are. But once you figure it out and you can lean into it and you can share it with those around you, it becomes a superpower. Okay. Are there any mistakes that you've made along the way or specific advice that you would give to somebody who is just starting out on their journey? Yeah, the biggest mistake by far and away uh, for me was just sitting on cash for way too long, uh, not being comfortable investing, not knowing how to invest, just having this analysis paralysis of believing you could invest, but not sure how. Uh, so my advice for anyone starting out, and especially, you know, I'll shout out to all the women who are listening. You just got to go for it. And you just got to eventually uh, pull the trigger on an investment and it's worth it. It's the all of the loss, the opportunity cost of just having your, your money sit in cash versus sit in any number of these mutual funds uh, is worth so, so, so much that you just got to take the plunge. Uh, there, I mean, there's a lot of stats out there about how women in particular are much more comfortable saving and better at saving, but then just struggle to invest. And 
when women do invest, when they actually are able to pick and be confident in their choice, they do better than their male peers uh, because they don't necessarily go with their emotions. They don't pull out when, when they should keep their money in. So just have the confidence that you will figure it out and just get your money in the market. On that note, real quick, just a follow up. I mean, what what led you to get the the confidence to move out of cash? And then on, on top of that, I'd love to hear kind of just your mindset. You know, over the last six months, one of the one of the unique things that I've really wanted to do with this podcast is be able to kind of track, you know, things as as you know, we've had a bull market for essentially my whole working career and life and whatnot. So it's kind of a, it's kind of been a little different until recently, right? We've had a couple different mm-hmm. hiccups over the last couple of years, but especially the last, you know, four to six months here as rates have increased significantly and, and we've had kind of some volatility all over the place. I mean, how have you, from a psychological standpoint, been able as somebody who's super frugal and used to be so heavy cash, been able to kind of ride that out, process that and, and be okay with what's, what's happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for me, it took, it took truly years to slowly convert my share of net worth from cash to investments. And I did it by the biggest thing for me was setting up auto investments, which I highly, 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 highly recommend for everyone. If, if you have some amount of cash that, you know, you, you make uh, you save uh, and you make more than you spend, you have that excess auto invest it into the market and not having to click the buttons every single time you invest was the number one tool that got me out of cash and into the market. Um, I set it up in a way where it was like slowly going to chip at my cash over the course of, I kid you not, years. It was going to take years. If you did the math on what I said is my auto investment, how much cash I had, I was going to dollar cost average four years, but I only set it up once. I had to do the hard work. I had to pull the trigger one time. And then from then on out, it was set and forget. And I have that to this day. Almost all of my investments are auto investments. I set it up once. I keep the balance so that it can auto invest. And even if, even if, let's say you overshoot one month, you spend more than you make, at least in, I use Fidelity. Fidelity will just skip the investment that you get an email that you skip the investment. No big deal. So not having to continuously sort of beat yourself up of like, okay, is this the right time? Should I do it now? Is this the right investment? Just set it up and don't, don't think about it. Awesome. It's Emily with a net worth million five plus. Thanks for coming to the show today. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to the Millionaires Unveiled podcast with Jace Mattinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website, millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire. Millionaire.